Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. You can follow me on Twitter at FTCN Host. Thanks for listening. Before I get to my guests for this show, I just wanted to send a special thank you to the U.S. Air Force's 350th Spectrum Warfare Wing for a great visit to Warner Robins Air Force Base that we had last week to attend the activation and assumption of command ceremony for Detachment 1 of the 350th Spectrum Warfare Wing and Detachment 1 of the 87th Electronic Warfare Squadron. As you know, I had Colonel Just Kozlov, the commander of the 350th Spectrum Warfare Wing, on my previous show, and we talked about this milestone coming up, but it was great to see everyone in person. And I think the thing that struck me the most was the positive energy surrounding the Air Force's efforts to grow the 350th. Whenever you have growth, it can be both dramatic and traumatic. It's easy to fall back into old ways of doing things. Um, and this has hampered the Air Force in the past, but the positive, unyielding energy that was on display last week just shows how important culture is to growth. And so kudos to Colonel Koslov, his team, and the entire Spectrum Warfare Wing for their efforts. It was a great visit and looking forward to staying in touch with them. So on to this episode, I am very pleased to be joined by my friend and colleague, retired U.S. Army Colonel Lori Buckhout. Lori is a decorated combat commander. As many of you may remember, she was tasked to also lead the new EW division that the Army stood up around 2010. After her retirement, she went on to start a very successful consulting company, which she recently left. And now she's free to simply talk about what she wants to talk about. She is a passionate supporter of the warfighter, a passionate advocate of electromagnetic warfare. As she has meant so much to me and my career because she's always been so approachable and knowledgeable that if you have a question, uh, she will give you an honest answer. So I'm very pleased to have her on the show. Also joining me as a guest co-host is retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel Michael Brock, who is AOC's newest member of the team as their Director of Strategic Partnerships and Training. Uh, his last Army assignment was as Assistant Army Capability Manager for Electronic Warfare, and he then went on to work for Lori at her consulting company upon his retirement. So uh, we are pleased to have him with us now as part of the AOC, but I thought it'd be fun as a former employee of Lori to have him on the show with me to share the, the guest co-host responsibilities. So without further delay, I welcome Lori Buckout along with my guest co-host, Michael Brock, to the show. Lori, I think most of our listeners already know who you are or have some idea about where you've come from over your career. But just to kind of help us get started, I don't think it's an overstatement to say we would not be having the conversation in electromagnetic warfare today, especially as it pertains to the Army, if it weren't for your efforts over the years. Your track record, your advocacy has been amazing. So could you kind of give a brief highlight about like exactly your role as the first director of EW in the Army and kind of what 
you brought to the table that really changed the game? Well, you know, I got very lucky to have some of the last training that the Army offered to officers in radio radio systems operation, RF, RF theory, antenna propagation, electronics, things like that, that most commissioned officers were not getting in 1985. So I was the last class to go through the Army. It was deemed too expensive for officers, and they began an abbreviated course for our great non-commissioned officers that was uh, teaching them spectrum management from the software side and friendly radio capabilities. So having one of those last skill sets for the commissioned officer corps, it kind of kept me interested in that throughout my entire career. I commanded a battalion in Iraq in the ground war 2003-2004. IDs were starting to kick in, but uh, the RF spectrum is also beginning to get very, very crowded, very contested and congested. A lot of folks didn't understand why, because we had lost a lot of that skill, at least the Army had. So after commanding in combat, I came back to the Pentagon, to the Joint Staff. The IEDs were beginning to kick up in theater and starting in Afghanistan. And all the Joint Staff folks were wondering what to do. I ended up working for an EA-6B Prowler Navy captain who, you know, that's the electronic uh, warfare aircraft uh, that the Navy had at the time. It's since upgraded to 18G Growlers. But between us, we sort of understood the issue and that you had RF devices detonating these IEDs, but you also had a whole bunch of congestion and contested environment. So I got picked up for some schools, war college, et cetera, declined because I have young kids. And so at the time, we had joined a task force on IEDs and were briefing General Pace, who was the uh, chairman at the time, and General Dick Cody, who was the vice chief of staff of the Army. So after declining war college, I was asked by General Cody to come over and start EW up in the Army because we saw this gap. Now, it was an intel function for years, but around the mid-1980s when the Cold War began to dissipate, intel sort of stepped away from it and focused more on cyber and SIGINT. So nobody was really doing the job. And so the vice chief of staff of the Army said, I want you to start it up again in the Army. So in 2006, I began that fight. And I can't take credit for it all by any means because it was General Cody who put me on the mission. Then General Loveless was the Army G3. And then General Thurman was the Army G3. And then General Corelli was the Army Vice Chief of Staff after Cody. So I would say those four guys got it. They were my biggest champions. And I was told to go out and create an MOS and a career field for officers. Colonel Mike Brock, who is my esteemed colleague and great friend, who is your co-host, was one of those. One of those who ended up being created. So I'm not Frankenstein and he's not a monster. But, uh, <laughs> I, you know, it was the leadership of the Army that impelled me and enabled me to lead in that effort. So we ended up with thousands of EWOs. It just grows more every year. It's incredibly exciting to watch. I feel almost motherly. I'm excited about that. And just watching the Army come so far and doing so many good things, having guys like Mike really are a testament to what the Army's doing well. I think that's one of the refreshing things I've always appreciated about the Army when we've done advocacy efforts for electromagnetic warfare. When the Army prioritizes it, it goes from the top down and the leadership is in line and it was, you, know, you could see that that effort in full gear with electronic warfare, you know, once they realize that the persisting gap that it faced and that it had to address. And that was always, that's always been refreshing because sometimes you get into these efforts and some people get it, some people don't, and it goes back and forth. But it seems like the Army, 
like you mentioned, a lot of the senior leadership got it and it flowed right down. So it, it had to be quite frankly, and I'll bring Michael Brock into this a little bit too, because both of you have that operational experience. U.S. advantage, military advantage has had really never been questioned, and particularly when we started the operations in, in Iraq. And then you face this thing called the spectrum. And you already knew it existed, obviously, but it, it had to have changed how you thought about the spectrum when all of a sudden you have the, the, the most advanced military having issues with, you know, remote controlled radio devices, garage door openers, cell phones, and causing issues with communications and so forth. How did that affect the Army's perspective, you know, in terms of like the urgency that it needed to address this issue? I'll kick off first, and then Mike's got the ground experience on doing this. I will say that remains a challenge today, and not everybody got it then, and not everybody gets it now, although it's getting better. Having that enemy stare you in the face made some of the kinetic warriors stand up and take notice, because the Army is all about kinetics, and the leaders who rise to the senior levels, the G3 of the Army, the vice chief, the chairman, the chief, all that sort of stuff, all those guys are kinetic warriors, meaning they're infantrymen, artillerymen, tankers, combat aviation, right? Those are the branches that rise to lead in our army. And those guys are about kinetics, smashing something, killing something with something else. The idea of something as as kind of loosey-goosey a spectrum entering into that as a combat multiplier really was difficult for many to comprehend. A lot of folks didn't get it, but, but championed it anyway. And a lot of folks sort of poo-pooed it away. There's still folks who don't quite get it, but I tell you what, the most important thing to drive home the necessity of that is always the enemy. It's so hard to tell people you need something and they don't understand it when they're out at National Training Center or something doing a kinetic fight and winning in a kinetic fight. But when the enemy comes in and has a voice, we saw it in Afghanistan, we saw it in Iraq, we saw it Russia going into you know Crimean and going into the Ukraine. We're seeing it elsewhere in the world. That really makes folks wake up. General Ben Hodges, when he was over in Usura, when Russia first went into the Ukraine, said the Russian EW capability is eye-watering. And that, again, made a lot of senior people wake up and take notice. So, frankly, if I can thank anyone for the you know resurgence in Army EW and the understanding of it, it's the enemy. A lot of our enemy gets it all over the world. So, Mike, you had time on the ground. Yeah, and Mike, I want to bring you in on that to get your perspective, because when you're talking about the enemy, I mean, as you alluded to, Lori, there's many enemies out there. There's many competitors out there. You can't just necessarily train for one type of battle or one enemy as, for example, Russia, or then you also have China. You also have some of the, you still have some of the uh, insurrection type of conflicts that you're facing. So from your operational experience, Michael, what do you have to add to Lori's message on this? Yeah, I think in the face of the enemy, we, we soon realized that uh, the electromagnetic spectrum was not just a resource to be utilized. In fact, we've seen language in both the, uh, the DOD electromagnetic spectrum superiority strategy and the new joint 3-85 joint electromagnetic spectrum operations, where it actually calls out the electromagnetic spectrum as a maneuver space. So that's a step towards the argument that is the spectrum a domain? There's, there's proponents on both sides don't want to go there. But the first step is recognizing the spectrum as, as a maneuver space that we have to compete in and we have to have control of. So that's, that's my take on it. The big picture is, is just that recognition and going towards 
Is cyber the, the domain or is the spectrum the domain? That's all good discussions to have. And Michael and I were just down in uh, Warner Robins Air Force Base for the, the 350th, U.S. Air Force 350th Spectrum Warfare Wing and their ceremony for new detachments coming up to that base. And that was really the message is that basically anything you want to do for your mission success today starts with your ability to control and achieve spectrum superiority. Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. Uh, BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating disruptive next-generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community, for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing through high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products to benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems Electronic Systems product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens it had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work and classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. So moving on, a lot of topics here. I, I want to get your thoughts on some of the current affairs. So, I mean, because you, you talk about, you mentioned, obviously, Russia moving into Ukraine. We've talked China. 
Where do you see U.S. going from here? Where do you what do you think is the next major step that we need to take as a country when it comes to advancing EMS superiority? Call it a maneuver space, call it a domain. You know, it's across the services. We have to obviously work with all the COCOMs because they're the ones that fight the war. So what is the next major step? You know, I think from the joint force, I think that we are going to see ourselves increasingly engaged, and I don't like it, but it is what it is, in sort of a proxy war. I see us engaged as a joint force in, uh, I mean, we've already sent troops to the Middle East for this Hamas and Israel thing. Of course, Syria is always popping up in Russia and the Ukraine. So we have troops in all those locations, right? As a joint force, we have to be aware of how we can work with the troops on the ground not belonging to the U.S., what their spectrum capabilities are going to be, what they're using, interoperability and compatibility with joint and coalition forces, I believe, needs to be a priority. We have made the mistake in the past where we have not done well with that. Frankly, we had years in Iraq when we did not do well with that. You know, you can name a lot of events that happened. It used to be the vignette I used to use was because the Iraq war was so long. You think about it, you know, when you would go into a crowded square in Baghdad when we were there, you would have U.S. forces, you would have armored vehicles, you'd have Humvees, you would have fires radars, you know, located around the city, counter battery stuff. You would have, you know, the Marines driving through in their vehicles with their crew devices, for instance, which were a different type than the Army had. So you got two different types of counter RCIED electronic warfare hardware. Then you had rotary wing, you had fixed wing. I mean, if you're by the Baghdad airport, you had DHS coming in with airplanes, you know. Then you had the Red Crescent Ambulance Service. You had emergency response from, you know, the the, uh, Iraqi government, which we were helping to stand up again. You had local radio stations and TV, so much. And then you think about how Back in the mid-2000s, when uh, Russia invaded Crimea, you had them blocking out the radio stations, jamming radio stations so that the, you know, the friendlies could not warn the citizens. So the understanding of having to go in with coalition, with host nation, and with joint forces, interoperability and compatibility, just on command, you know, command and control, is huge. Then when you get into your weapon systems and when you get into actually your EW capabilities, both ground and air, that's just another layer of complexity. So I would say interoperability and compatibility are going to be absolutely crucial in anything we do, I would say, in the next few years. Exactly what uh, Lori's saying. We're never going to fight alone. So we always have to have a network that can talk to each other. And that was definitely a challenge in uh, Iraq in the early part of the war. We, we couldn't talk to our allies. We couldn't talk to our partners. And if we did, it interfered with one another. It was a, a real mess because we did not understand the complexity of the spectrum. And I think the Iraq one was a simple one compared to what we're going to face if something happens in a bigger theater. Another piece to this puzzle that I wanted to, to talk with you about was, you know, you mentioned, obviously, with interoperability, compatibility, is, is critical moving forward. The other piece I think is we need the right people, uh, the right personnel. And a lot of that has to do with making sure that we're training. You oversaw the the startup in, you know, in the army of training into that specialty. We need to find the people, we need to find the right skill sets. Some of that has to do with how the, each of the individual services 
they have the responsibility to man, train, and equip. So the services have the primary responsibility in that there was just an article where the Army was thinking about possibly training for EW as early as basic training, which I think is a great idea. I wanted to get your take on that. And just how do we tackle that problem of finding the right people in the right number? You know, that was something that actually General Cody, the first vice chief of staff that had the idea to restart Army EW in 2006, he saw it as a core skill, as a basic capability that every soldier should have right down there with your individual weapon, donning your NBC mask, individual decontamination, you know, all those kind of things that you need to survive, the basics you need to survive in combat. And I think, you know, as we matured that idea, it became down to the idea of being aware that the spectrum is even there, being aware that your cell phone, if you carry it into combat, it is uh, it is an emitter as well as a collector. So as well as collecting calls and videos, whatever, and cat videos, it's also an emitter and the enemy can find you based on that cell phone. All your RF, all your radios, every soldier today, every modern soldier is an emitter and a collector on the battlefield. You know, you're carrying so much gear. There are very few people out there engaged in combat who have nothing on them that either emits or collects. So I think it was a brilliant idea from his point of view. And uh, I think we need to mature that into the idea that every soldier is aware of the dangers and the capabilities of the spectrum in just a very basic manner. Absolutely agree. I think that this is is, is a great sign that Army is thinking about this the right way and and able to undertake some some uh, bold change from the way that it's has been approaching this. And so I, I'm I'm very excited. Hopefully that that does catch on. Hopefully the other services uh, think about this too. With that though, it's you know we want to train them as early in their time in the service as possible, but we also want to get them before they even join the military too, because I think it's not just those who fight the war, but it's those who work on the programs, whether it's in industry or as a federal civilian employees, uh, we need the engineering skills. So we need to capture the, the the STEM. And I wanted to get your thoughts on how do we build up that STEM expertise, continue to do that. Michael, you know, you're, this is part of your job here with the AOC. And I wanted to bring you in on this and talk about how do we reach the right people as early as high school, or, you know, to get them understanding exactly your point, Laurie, about everyone is using the spectrum. We're all emitters. If I may, can I throw Michael under the bus first? He's a few years younger than I am, and I know he's got some really good ideas, especially in his new role of, up, of outreach. Yeah, so that's a great question, Ken. What we're looking at doing is, right now, if you look at STEM programs out in grade schools, middle schools, high schools, and even colleges, the spectrum is not a big topic within STEM. We need to add spectrum, the electromagnetic spectrum, as a key component to the STEM program. Kids are taught to computer coding in fourth grade now, but they don't understand the physics of why does a computer work. It's because of the electromagnetic environment is why a computer works. Without it, it does not. So they need to understand the basics of the physics. And I say physics and everybody says, oh, that's, that's big, scary stuff. That's a lot of math. But if we start young, we can get there. There's other countries that do this and they're very good at it. And, and that's why we're behind them when it comes to fight and in, engaging in the spectrum. So I, I believe that's where we need to start is in the STEM programs as early as grade school, teaching our kids, our young kids about the electromagnetic environment and do the simple math first, but get them to the point where they in college, they will be electrical engineers and they'll love it. 
Hey, I think that is spot on. I come from an area, it's, it's rural eastern North Carolina, a lot of farmers, a lot of agricultural land out here. There's, you know, fisheries and stuff like that. But I tell you what, when you drive around, you're going to see combines and you're going to see tractors that are as big as a house. They are fully automated. They've got RF wireless capabilities all over them. And farmers today are not what farmers were 50 years ago. It is it is night and day. And, you know, the people operating those, those capabilities are extremely sharp. I think we have to do the right thing in terms of schools in rural communities and start to introduce STEM very early. I think that we need to push that curriculum in in the early years, just like Mike said. You do have kids learning to code early. You do have kids who understand computers very early. I mean, the age at which a kid gets a cell phone is getting earlier and earlier of some sort or another, or a tablet or something like that. And understanding the basics behind that is a critical skill. It's like reading, writing, math, you know, computers, IT, RF. I, I, I think those are going to be key components of America succeeding. So with, with the few minutes that we have left, kind of want to address the elephant in the room a little bit because you have some uh, recent developments that, you know, I wanted to talk with you generally about. Now, by way of doing this, I have to, of course, make the very clear disclaimer that the AOC does not uh, endorse, support, or contribute to any political candidate at the federal, state, or local level. No dollar of membership funds or anything from AOC goes to support candidates. But you and I have talked a lot about what's going on in Congress. And so when I heard this news, I was like very excited. So uh, could you tell the listeners a little bit about what's going on and the news that you've been sharing? <laughs> sure, absolutely. So I've decided to run for Congress in North Carolina's first district. That does represent, like I said, a lot of rural North Carolina. I'm a farm girl. I grew up on a farm. And this was, you know, many years ago. And having been in the military for almost 30 years, understanding the RF side, and then having run my own business, which was an EW business for several years and selling it, that's become my heart and soul. So the idea of combining service to my district and to my state with electronic warfare very much resonates with me. You know, Ken, you and I have talked, and Mike, you too, about the shortfalls we have seen coming out of Congress regarding funding the services and impelling the services to take electronic warfare and the spectrum more seriously. There is the EW Working Group up in Congress, which I'm very much looking forward to joining and being a part of. And as a part of that group, I want to help push the services towards modernizing and developing EW capability. And I also want to be able to look at the technology associated with that and driving that down to my district and, you know, North Carolina writ large. So I'm excited about this run. I'm running because a lot of it, you know what, you guys in the AOC, the old crows, and of course, you know, soldiers and service, service people all over, it excites me to represent that gang. We kind of run on the, on the down low, we EW folks, because a lot of folks don't understand it. I'm looking forward to evangelizing on an even higher level. And you know I'm an evangelist. Ken, you are too. And Mike, you certainly are. So <laughs> I am really looking forward to it. This is, uh, is going to be a great ride. I think it's going to be good for DOD, good for troops, and uh, very bad for our enemies. With my past being a legislative director for a member of Congress, I had the great benefit of working for someone who understood what it meant to be a statesman. 
Congressman Pitts, who I work for, his approach to the job was is just not as prevalent as maybe we'd like to see. So it's great to know that there's people out there that really do care about serving the country in every stage of their career. And so, you know, con- congratulations on this effort. And, and I'm sure we'll be following it. Many of us will be following it. And it's very easy to find out via LinkedIn. I know that you have many meetings today, so I, you have a very busy schedule and I want to respect your time. And so in closing, I just wanted to give you the microphone one more time just to kind of, if, if there was anything else that we did not cover that you wanted to share with the audience. Well, I guess a couple of things. First off, Ken and Mike, thank you both. You guys have been mentors to me and have been very much shaping my growth in electronic warfare because I did not come to this as early as you guys did in your lives. So I really appreciate that from you all. Even an old dog can learn new tricks. So I think I'm proof of that. I'm always learning from folks like you. But second, I honestly think that America has not been in such a dangerous position in my lifetime as far as the homeland goes. The wars abroad are bad enough, but the threat to the homeland is frightening me a lot. We're seeing an influx of people who are on the terrorist watch list coming into America through our borders. Regardless of your political feelings on that, I worry about you. I worry about families. I worry about vulnerabilities. And these are the same kind of people who built IEDs and blew things up in Iraq and Afghanistan. So, you know, keep your heads on a swivel, folks. We have a lot of work to do in making sure that America is kept safe. And uh, I think that is something that I worry about and lose sleep over. So, That's not a positive way to end it, but you know what? Being prepared is positive. So heads up and let's keep moving forward on what we do to keep people safe. Thank you very much. And and even though that maybe, you know, was uh, not the most positive statement at the end, I want the listeners to know that everything that you've touched has turned to positive. So I think that it's great that you're staying engaged in this because we need people like you to really step out, take risk, and really tell everyone around them and advocate, whether it's just for EW or whatever the issue. So thank you very much for your time and join me here on From the Crow's Nest. Hopefully I'll have you back again real soon. And Michael, thank you for joining me as a guest co-host. But with that, thank you for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. All right. Thank you guys so much. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I want to thank my guest, retired Army Colonel Lori Buckhout for joining me, as well as my guest co-host, Michael Brock. Also, I want to remind everyone that AOC's 60th Annual International Symposium and Convention is just around the corner. It's about a month away, coming up on December 11th to the 13th. You can learn more about the agenda and all the great speakers and, and topics that we'll be covering there at crows.org. For more information, registration is open, and uh, it looks like it's going to be a fantastic event, so we hope you can join us. Also, don't forget to review, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We always enjoy hearing from our listeners, so please take some time to let us know how we're doing. That's it for today. Again, you can follow me on Twitter at FTCN Host. Thanks for listening. FastLabs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. 
check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.